All right, I'm back. Apologies there. <laughs> Welcome again to OT with DA. Had a little technical difficulties there that I had to fix. Welcome to Instagram. Welcome to YouTube. It's day 39 of OT with DA. We're in chapter 38, the journey around Edom. So today, at least for the first part of the chapter, we'll be talking about the descendants of Esau. Chapter 38, day 39. Hard to imagine. I hope you've had an awesome day today. I've had a really great day. I went rock climbing with my wife this morning, Violetta. She's now gone with dear friends of ours up into the mountains where she'll be sort of hiking and snowshoeing and hanging around for the next two to three days. So I'm going to be batching it. And uh, whenever she leaves, she always cooks me up a giant batch of beans and rice or sometimes lentils, Indian food. And I'm totally happy with that. I had beans and rice tonight for dinner. I'll have it tomorrow for breakfast. I'll have it tomorrow for dinner. I'll have it the next day for breakfast. I'll have it the next day for dinner. I mean, she made like, I don't know, a, a quadruple batch. And so uh, I'm batching it. And um, yeah, I miss her when she goes, but I love the fact that she has that adventurous spirit, right? If somebody says, hey, do you want to do something? Nine times out of 10, my wife is up for it. And it's one of my very favorite things about her. Uh, today, we went rock climbing. And uh, she loves rock climbing in certain situations. She doesn't like being cold. So if it's a day that we're going to go outside rock climbing, she always wants to know, is it going to be cold? And if it's going to be cold, she's not up for it. But she loves to go if it's warm. And if it's indoors, she really likes that. And I was so proud of her today. She's so strong. And she's such a good climber. If you're on Instagram, you can go look at my story. And I put up a little one-minute video of her doing her 11th climb today. And uh, it was a 510, which if you know anything about climbing, she did about eight or maybe seven 510s today, a 511, and then a couple warm-ups. And even on her 11th climb, she's just cruising it. She just, she just cruises up it. She's such a good climber, and she's very strong. So anyway, all of that is to say, I love my wife. Violet, if you're watching, I miss you. I love you, even though I just saw you a few hours ago. All right, we are in chapter 38, the journey around Edom. This is based on numbers, sort of the second half of Numbers chapter 20, and the first 10 verses of Numbers chapter 21. And let me grab my journal here. I did the thing that I sometimes do where I sketch out the sort of the, the order or the sequence of this chapter. And I'll get to that in just a second. So I'm going to start with prayer. I thought I had one announcement to make other than just singing the praises of my wife. Um, what was it? Oh, I know what it was. Hopefully, I'm going to have a conversation tomorrow with Mark from Types and Symbols. And then we're going to just sort of touch bases, make sure that we're on the same page. And then tomorrow or the next day, I'm going to make an announcement about how we're going to proceed with the rest of the conflict beautiful, because we still have prophets and kings, Acts of the Apostles, and uh, Great Controversy. And that's going to take a while, right, obviously. But we got a little plan, and I think it's a good one. It's his idea. Uh, not my idea, but his ideas are very often good. And so we're just going to touch bases tomorrow, and so I should be able to make that announcement in very short order. Oh, also, if you didn't know, um, I already today uploaded the uh, supplemental session five with uh, Dr. John Peckham. It's two hours and 35 minutes. Yes, it's long, but guess what? I listened to it today. 
right? Well, I, while I was busy doing some other things around the house and also when I was taking Violetta, dropping her off at a friend's, and when I was uploading a video, I kind of just had it on all day. I got through the whole thing and it's amazing. Like it's fantastic. It's even better than I remembered it. And so I think I just checked the YouTube channel before I went live here and it's already got like 1200 views and I put it up less than 24 hours ago. So this is the kind of video that even for people that are not doing the OT with DA challenge, if they have questions about theodicy, that is to say the affirmation of the goodness of God in the face of overwhelming evil, or questions about violence in the Old Testament, questions about genocide, how do we know what we know? I mean, it's just an amazing session. And so exactly the kind of resource that you could share with someone, even if they're not doing OT with DA or they're not tracking at all. And so anyway, so happy. A big shout out to, to John Peckham. Um, if you haven't already, go buy his books, especially the book Theodicy of Love. That's the book that our conversation is based on and uh, outstanding book. And uh, thank you, John. Really appreciate that. So that's uploaded. It took me a little extra time to get yesterday's video, video uploaded, but I did it this afternoon and I just checked my YouTube channel and it's up. So probably if you're watching live, you already have seen it because you saw it live, but just as a heads up. All right, let's pray. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, chapter 38, day 39. You know what that means. That means tomorrow is day 40. And 40 is a very significant number, biblically speaking, and even in terms of our own studies, right? 40 has come up uh, quite a little bit. Tomorrow's day 40. I can't believe it. I can't even as I say it, it's hard to imagine that we've been doing this for almost 40 days already. So let's start with prayer and we're into this. Thank you all for tuning in Instagram Live. God bless you there on YouTube. And uh, we're going to start with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to just pause right now and be mindful that you are God and that you have gone above and beyond and then beyond that still to make salvation and reconciliation available to every member of the human race. And Father, we come to you right now as individuals. We are hurting. We have needs. We want to know you. We have failed. We have fallen. Um, Father, we also have joys and happiness and cheer in our heart. Father, you know all of us perfectly, intimately, and, and personally. And so the prayer of my heart tonight, Father, is that you will take this uh, walk through chapter 38, and that it will tailor be tailor-made by your Spirit to every individual circumstance and situation. Uh, Father, we lean into you. We lean into your goodness and your grace. And Father, it's just becoming so obvious that you are working in and around and sometimes through uh, a variety of circumstances to bring your people to yourself and to fulfill your promises. So, Father, fulfill your promise tonight to be with us by your Spirit. You have promised that where two or more are gathered, you'll be there. So we're counting on that. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do this. Joe Loves God says, good job to Violetta for rock climbing. Yes, very good job to her. She is wonderful. Okay, as we've already mentioned, this chapter is based on the sort of second half of Numbers chapter 20. And let me just sort of itemize here what is covered in this chapter, and then the first 10 verses of Numbers chapter 21. Uh, basically, sort of 10 things here as I was writing them down, trying to keep track of them. First of all, we open with the interaction with the Edomites, right? They send this letter. That letter is rejected. The request to go through the land of Edom, they say no. 
So then that's number one. Then number two, the journey around Edom. And one of the things that comes up, and I want to talk about quite a little bit, is the restrictions. This is mentioned at least five times in this chapter, the very specific restrictions that God placed on Israel with regard to the Edomites and other nations. Uh, then number four, the death of Aaron atop Mount Hor. And then the this is a part of that, the appointment of Aaron's son Eliezer to the high priesthood. Then there's this really beautiful, nostalgic, heartwarming section where Ellen White is just describing the sort of recollection that, that Moses and Aaron were having together as they made their way up the mountain, as they remained at the top of the mountain. Really beautiful. Um, then after they leave Mount Hor, there is the defeat by a Canaanite king named Arad or Arad or Arad uh, near Mount Hor. They continue to journey south and murmuring and complaining plays a significant role here. That's eight, then nine, the fiery serpents, and then finally 10, the uplifted serpent. So by my calculation, that's what the chapter covers, and uh, we're obviously not going to spend time on every one of those, at least not too much time. So let's sort of start by, by just sort of introducing ourselves here to the chapter and this is where the, and this is described in Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites send a letter to the descendants of Esau, and the letter begins, thus says your brother Israel, which is actually really kind of cool, kind of quaint, right? Like the descendants of Jacob are writing to the descendants of Esau, and they're saying, look, we've had a real rough go. We've been through a rough patch, and you've probably heard about it. You heard about our deliverance from Egypt. And then you've heard that we've been wandering around in the wilderness, right? Because they were wandering largely around Mount Seir. And Mount Seir is one of the places that was given to Edom, to the Edomites. And so certainly they would have been aware. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people just wandering aimlessly in the desert. So it's not like they didn't know. But now they're on their way to the promised land and they write this letter and say, hey, we'd really like to be able to come through your property, through your land, and they say, look, we won't pass through fields or vineyards. We're not going to drink water from your wells. Uh, we're going to go along the king's highway. We won't turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Ellen White calls this a courteous request. And then she says, but it received a threatening refusal. Like, no, you cannot come through our land under any circumstances. Uh, they then say, oh, man, it's a really long way around. It would be great if we could go through your land. And so they write a second note. Uh, that would have been delivered. And it was kind of like, please, really? Can we please go through? And they add this, we will go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Only let me pass through on foot. And then the response comes, you're not going to pass through. She then says, armed bands of Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were already posted at the difficult passes so that any peaceful advance in that direction was impossible. And then we come to the first of several really cool things, fascinating little insights that I want to point out. She says, and the Hebrews were forbidden to resort to force. Ah, okay. Now this actually dovetails really well, and I know I've already said this, but I'll just say it again. I've been so pleased, and I can't take credit for it because it really has just been the Lord working it out and people's schedules just coming together in a really providential and wonderful way. But the supplemental sessions have really helped OT with DA 
and our understanding of the Old Testament, our understanding of God's actions in the Old Testament, and they've lined up at such great times. And so the conversation that I just had day before yesterday with Dr. Peckham, we talked about how God's desire for Israel to go into the promised land was never for them to be militarily uh, advancing in conquest on these tribes. It wasn't like, hey, our army is stronger than your army. You know, the old, like, our God is stronger than your God. Our dad can beat up your dad. It was actually going to be God who was going to go before them. The ark was going to be out front, and it was not going to be a military conquest. I mean, she makes this point explicitly on page 473. Let me just remind you of that. This is back in the 12, tri uh, the 12 spies chapter. This is page 393 of the original. I'll just quickly read this. It says, uh, we have sinned against the Lord, they cried. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. Deuteronomy 141. So terribly blinded had they become by transgression, the Lord had never commanded them to, quote, go up and fight. It was not his purpose that they should gain the land by warfare, but by strict obedience to his commands. Okay, very interesting. And we get into this in pretty significant depth in the supplemental session with John, how, how God's plan was for basically the nations that had heard about Yahweh overturning and humiliating the gods of Egypt, that they would basically be fleeing before the oncoming Israelites, and that you basically had three choices. You could flee, you could remain and be destroyed by the brightness of Yahweh's presence, or you could defect and join the Israelites like many of the Egyptians did when they went out of Egypt. So those are the options, but unfortunately, uh, that's not what ended up happening. 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, and we made this point that when they tried to go up the next day and take by force what they refused to receive by belief and faith that God would go before them, it actually made it worse for all parties involved, right? It made it worse for the Israelites, it made it worse for the Canaanites, and it even made it worse for God, because when the Israelites were soundly defeated militarily the next day when they tried to take by force, it caused the Canaanites to go, well, maybe we shouldn't be afraid of these people. Maybe the reports are exaggerated. You know, this whole story about overturning the Egyptian gods and drowning the Israelite, uh, the Egyptian armies in the Red Sea, maybe it was all, in all, maybe it was all an exaggeration. And so now, tragically, terribly, their unwillingness to go forward has actually decreased the fear that the Canaanites would have had. And you know, Rahab's going to make this point when we get to the story of Jericho. She says, when we heard what happened in, Israel, in Egypt, we were terrified. We were terrified. And so this is so interesting. Let me go back to page 513, 423 of the original. Listen to what she said. When the Edomites refused their request to go through, the temptation might have been to be like, hey, who are these guys? You know, we're going to go in anyway, militarily. But she says, and I'll quote it here again, the Hebrews were forbidden to resort to force. They must make the long journey around Edom. And she's going to say this several times. Let me just point them all out. Bottom of page 513, 423 of the original, it says, uh, in the directions first given to Moses concerning their passage through Edom, after declaring that the Edomites should be afraid of Israel, the Lord had forbidden his people to make use of this advantage against them. Because the power of God was engaged for Israel and the fears of the Edomites would make them an easy prey, third time now, the Hebrews were not therefore to prey upon them. Okay, so three times she's saying that they weren't allowed to behave in an aggressive 
or militaristic way toward Edom. She's not done yet. I'm on page 514, 424 of the original. Jump down to the paragraph that begins, the ancestors of Edom and Israel were brothers and brotherly kindness and courtesy should exist between them. The Israelites, here it is again, were forbidden either then or at any future time to revenge the affront given to them in the refusal of passage through the land. Jump down a few sentences later. They were directed in all their interaction with the Edomites to beware of doing them an injustice. Wow, okay. Uh, stay in that same paragraph and jump down a few more sentences again. They must not by force or fraud seek to obtain anything. And so she makes the point, I mean, how many times was that? I marked them here. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, not less than six times. She says that they were not allowed to use force against the Edomites. Now, this wasn't just a special dispensation for the Edomites because they were the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, Israel. Uh, it was the way that it was supposed to be with everybody, right? God did not call them to be this militaristic, marauding tribe going through and indiscriminately, you know, committing crimes of injustice. And no, that's not, that wasn't the plan. The plan was to be something very much like what we saw in Egypt, where God fought for them, right? The Israelites didn't manufacture the plagues. God did the plagues. And the Israelites didn't manufacture the passage through the Red Sea. That was something God did, right? The Israelites did not, you know, soundly defeat the Egyptian armies. God did that. And so they request to go through, the Edomites say no, and then God says, don't you even think about in any way exercising violence or they would have lost anyway because the Edomites would have known the land. She says that they were stationed at these dangerous mountain passes. They could have thrown heavy rocks down on them. But the point is not whether or not they would have been successful in the warfare, but that the warfare was strictly forbidden. Man, this is such a great point. So go back and listen to the conversation with, with uh, John, and, and you'll see we unpack this in even greater detail. Okay, I'm back on page 513, and she makes this really great point. She basically says that if they had gone through Edom in the original opportunity, they would have been allowed to just pass through. She actually calls it the golden opportunity. She says they could have gone through and the fear of Yahweh was on the Edomites and they would have said, sure, sure, just pass through whatever you want. You know, we're, we're not going to give you any trouble. But because the, of the unfaithfulness and the unbelief and the discontent of the Israelites following their wilderness wanderings, now the Edomites are like, no, we're not going to accommodate you. No, go around, go around. And so here again, Israel's disobedience and unfaithfulness and murmuring and discontent actually increased the problems and the impediments that they had to work around. I mean, they literally have to go around Edom, so that's, that's an impediment. But it's also an impediment for the leadership, Moses and Aaron. It's an impediment for God. And it's a giant, it's a giant bummer, frankly, for the Edomites, because she actually makes the point that one of the things that God wanted to do was have Israel go through so that they could become, so that the Edomites could become acquainted with Yahweh, right? So it was like evangelistic. But when the door was shut because of their unbelief, they missed like a ministry opportunity, an evangelistic opportunity. And uh, then she has this great paragraph there, page still on page 513, 423 of the original, where she talks about how when the golden opportunity had passed, that Satan was there 
at every step to resist and to contest the Israelites' safe passage into the promised land. And there's a, there's a ton going on here, and John and I get into that a little bit in the supplemental session, that, that God had his portion, and his portion was Israel. And so God, according to the covenantal rules of engagement that we talk about in that supplementary session, supplemental session, that God was allowed to work in and through Israel, and Satan is working in and through these surrounding nations. And so whenever there was an evangelistic or ministerial opportunity to expose the surrounding nations to the one true God, the creator God, Yahweh, God wanted Israel to avail themselves of that opportunity, but they missed it. And I wrote here in my margin, Satan plus an unbelieving heart make a great team. Right? That's what's going on here. You have Satan is working, and then the unbelieving heart of the Israelites coalesce together to make it very difficult for Israel, for the Edomites, for the leadership, for God, for everybody. And then she says they're quite interesting, uh, that last line in that uh, paragraph that begins, had the people when brought into trial. Look at the very last line there. She says, and by their own unbelief, they had repeatedly opened the door for him to resist the purpose of God. You can just substitute purpose there for will, to resist the will of God. God's will can be resisted because, as we've already noted again and again, God max massively prioritizes creaturely freedom, and so they have thwarted the will of God, the purpose of God, the desire of God. God wanted a different outcome. God wanted a different situation to eventuate, but when Israel's unbelief made uh, that impossible, God has to work with what he's got to work with, right? And uh, in the next paragraph, she says there was hesitation and delay. God des desired to bestow blessings, uh, and we need to be ready when God opens up an opportunity to, to be minutemen, she says. Like God's providence opens up a door, and we have the sense that this is where we're supposed to go. She says don't delay, because our delay and our unbelief and our hesitation can actually close that door. And then we've got a workaround that's going to be more painful to us and possibly the loss of an evangelistic opportunity, a ministry opportunity, such as happened here with the Edomites. Okay, I'm turning the page now. I'm on page 514. Um, she, she makes a really cool point here about how because Esau was a descendant of Abraham, that God, I'm just reading now, God had shown favor to the children of Esau. And I'm just going to read this section. This is... Uh, kind of that long paragraph that began on the previous page begins in the directions first given to Moses, but about oh, a little over halfway down. God had shown favor to the children of Esau. He had given them Mount Seir for a possession, and they were not to be disturbed, watch this, unless their own sins, by their own sins, they should place themselves beyond the reach of his mercy. This is a key point in this chapter, that by our own sins, God gives us over to the consequences of the choices that we are freely making. So she's saying, look, 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 Israel was not to molest them. Israel was not to bother them. Israel was forbidden to do anything of an aggressive nature toward Edom. And then she says, so interesting, I'll read it again. He had given them Mount Seir for a possession, and they were not to be disturbed unless by their own sins they should place themselves beyond the reach of his mercy. They placed them, underline this. This is, this is exactly Ellen White's theology of sin and theology of consequence through the whole book, right? Like, like sin is its own punishment, and God is his own reward. 
if we can, if we insist on participating rebelliously, habitually, defiantly in sin, eventually we will reap that bitter harvest. And that's what she's saying here. Israel couldn't molest them. And by extension, it's implied that the other nations weren't allowed to molest them either, but that if they really steeped themselves in sin, if they hardened themselves in sin, that they would place themselves beyond the reach of his mercy. Continuing, the Hebrews were to dispossess and utterly destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. We get into that. Dispossession was the priority and destruction only for those that refused to flee or defect. We get into that with uh, uh, Dr. Peckham. Um, who had filled up the measure of their iniquity, but the Edomites were still, fascinating word here, probationers. Probationers. They were still on probation, and as such, they were to be mercifully dealt with. God delights in mercy. Underline it, circle it, highlight it. I mean, just say it with me. God delights in mercy. Say it again. God delights in mercy. Right? This has that Lamentations 3, 32 and 33 feel to it, right? That he does not afflict willingly. He doesn't afflict from his heart. God's desire is to give mercy and forgiveness and compassion. God delights in mercy and he manifests his compassion before he inflicts his judgments. And John makes this point repeatedly in the supplemental session. And I know I'm referring to it a lot, but it's just, again, it just is in lockstep with what we're talking about here, that a judgment, especially a, a terminal judgment, was only the very, very, very last resort. When all other routes, when all other circuits were sealed off, judgment was the final, the, the final option, right? The final recourse. And so she says that. God delights in mercy. He manifests, he manifests his compassion before he inflicts his judgments. He teaches Israel to spare the people of Edom before requiring them to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan because they're different. Right? This shows us that God is not partial. The situation in Canaan is radically different than the situation in Edom. This is not an indiscriminate genocide, and you'll sometimes meet secularists, atheists, or skeptics. They'll say, hey, 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 how can you believe in the Bible? God here commanded and affirmed outright genocide. It's not true. It's a very sloppy and perfunctory reading of the text to say that whatever the thing is that God is commanding, and I'm not pretending like it's easy, there are some difficult passages there, but it's not ethnic, it's not tribal, it's not racial. Okay, there's no, there's no ethnic cleansing here, so it's not a genocide, right? It's, it's not a genocide. It's people can flee before Yahweh, or they can defect and join Israel, but if they rebelliously resist the occupation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, well, that's not going to go well for them. Um, okay, I got to jump down. There's just so much good in this chapter. Jump down to the next paragraph. Paragraph begins, the ancestors of Edom. Go down about halfway through that. While the Israelites were the chosen and favored people of God. Wow, this is a fantastic section. I actually wrote wow in the margin here. They must heed the restrictions. Watch what she does here, which he placed on them. Oh, that's a seventh. That's a seventh indication that they were restricted or forbidden from acting in ways that were out of harmony with God's direction and God's law. So let me just read that again. While the Israelites were cho the chosen and favored people of God, they must heed the restrictions which he had placed upon them. God had promised them a goodly inheritance, but they were not to feel that they alone had any rights in the earth and seek to, fascinating language here, crowd out all the others. No, 
They were directed in all their interaction with the Edomites to beware of doing them an injustice. They were to trade with them, buying such supplies as were needed, and promptly paying for all that they received. This is such a great indication that God's plan here is not ethnic, it's not partiality or favoritism, right? There was a promised land, and Israel was God, were God's covenant people, but they weren't just to crowd out all the other tribes. The Canaanite tribes in particular, God was going to dispossess and displace, or if they resisted that dispossession, they were going to be extirpated. Okay, that's true, but that's not everybody. It's not, a, it's not an indiscriminate genocide of all people that didn't have the, you know, genes of Abraham. That's not what's going on here. This is about faithfulness to Yahweh and believing that, that all of your idols and your deities are actually impotent. They can't do anything, as we saw in Egypt. And now you can align yourself with the true God, the one creator God. And when people like Rahab and Ruth the Moabitess and and others, the Gibeonites, for example, we're going to talk about them. They make peace with, with Israel. God was happy to receive them, just like he was happy to receive many of the Egyptians that went with Israel out of Egypt. Okay, so I, I know I'm making this point over and over again, but it just can't be stated too often. This is not a genocide. There's nothing ethnic, racial, tribal going on here. Not at all. And she makes a hard distinction, and Scripture makes a hard distinction between all of the surrounding tribes that were there, like the Edomites, and the Canaanite tribes. The Canaanite tribes in particular were given over uh, to grotesque sins, and John and I talk about this in the supplemental session, including but not limited to temple prostitution and child sacrifice. And so God said, yeah, that's not going to work. We can't have you coexisting with these people because can two walk together except they be agreed. Okay, I'm on the next page, 515. Oh man, this is amazing. Paragraph begins, this is a 425 of the original paragraph begins, had they in this manner passed through Edom? Oh, this is too good. Jumped out about halfway through that paragraph. Um, let's see, where are we at here? And it looks like it's just one giant sentence. I guess I'll just start at the beginning. Had they in this manner passed through Edom as God had purposed, the passage would have proved a blessing, not only to themselves, but to the inhabitants of the land, for it would have given them an opportunity to become acquainted with God's people and his worship, and to witness how the God of Jacob prospered those who loved and feared him, very much like the experience of the descendants of Jacob in the land of Gershon, right, where they began to have this really positive and evangelistic influence on the Egyptians in that area. And so she's saying, hey, look, plan A in this circumstance would have been a giant win for Israel, a shorter path, and for the Edomites, because they would have gotten exposure. And then you have this word, this crucial word, but, sadly, tragically, but all this unbelief, all this, the, all this, the unbelief of Israel had prevented, the unbelief of Israel had prevented. It's not like God was disingenuous or he just changed his mind capriciously. No, God had a plan A, Israel resists plan A, so God has to work with what he's got. God had given the people water in answer to their clamors. Now watch this. This is an incredible sentence. Underline this. But he permitted their unbelief to work out its punishment. This is exactly what we just read a moment ago about Edom, that they were not to be bothered until their own sin or unless their own sin placed them outside of the mercy of God. Now listen to this. He permitted their unbelief to work out its punishment. In fact, there's a great word you can insert here. 
You can just you can just make a note here that right after its punishment, I'm just going to draw a little line here and I'm going to write the word own. O W N. Because it really gives you a feel for what she's saying here. I'll read it. It would sound like this, but he permitted their unbelief to work out its own punishment. Do you see that? And here again, the the punishments of God, the the justice of God, the judgments of God are not arbitrary. They're not contrived. They're not external to the situation. They are the natural and invariable consequences of choosing to live contrary to the way that Yahweh has invited us to live and commanded us to live in his law. And I just, I know I make this point again and again, but I meet so many well-meaning Christian people who don't seem to understand this, right? They don't understand that the wages of sin is death, that sin has its own inbuilt obsolescence and punishment, right? And so what God is doing is he's giving people over. I mean, this is the story really of the Old Testament. And Paul makes this point in Romans chapter one, one, two, three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. To what? To their own ways. And when we're given over to our own ways, our rebellious, sinful, self-centered ways, it does not go well for us. God doesn't have to come around the side and artificially or contrivedly punish because the punishment is inbuilt to the disobedience. And so she makes that point here. He permitted their unbelief to work out its own punishment. Exactly. Okay, then they arrive at Mount Hor, and uh, she talks about how God reveals to Moses that this is where Aaron's going to die. And I loved this section. This was probably my favorite section in the whole chapter, even though I really, really, really love all of the gospel material at the end with the brazen serpent. But th- this is just so beautiful and nostalgic. And as somebody who, who has a brother that I'm very close to, my younger brother, Robert, and uh, I have two sons who are brothers, I, I just feel this. This Moses and Aaron section, I feel it. And she there's some great writing here. Still on page 515, I love this. Uh, paragraph begins, together these two aged men and the younger one toiled up the mountain height, right? So this was Moses, Aaron, and Eliezer. This is the son of Aaron. The heads of Moses and Aaron were white with snows of six score winters. That's great writing and that's cool, right? That's just so cool. I just love that, right? 120 years of, of winters and she says their hair was white. There's some really great writing in this section. Their long and eventful lives have been marked by the deepest trials, check, and the greatest honors. And I, as a climber myself, and as someone who loves the mountains, you can just see these three people making their way up. I mean, they're old. Aaron's 123 years old. Moses is 120 years old. I don't know how old Eliezer is, but he wouldn't have been young himself, probably, right? Let's say he's 60. Maybe he's 70. Maybe he's 80. Maybe one of you know how old he is. I didn't look for it. But the three of them are making their way up. And I wonder, I wonder if Moses tells Aaron, like before they make the journey, does he say, hey, Aaron, the Lord has revealed to me that you're going to die and that I'm supposed to take you up to the top of the mountain and that's where you're going to die? Or does he wait until they get to the summit and then he tells him? I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to imagine that he told him before. So, and maybe, I don't know, I don't know the answer, but there's some really cool stuff here. Turn the page, 516. 
Oh, I just got to read this paragraph. Many years, Moses and Aaron, this is uh, 425. Many years, Moses and Aaron had stood side by side in their cares and labors. I was just getting nostalgic thinking about this. And, and if I was a crier, which I sometimes wish I was a crier, if I was a crier, this is a great crying section, right? It's just so nostalgic and it's beautiful. And I love nostalgia. Most of the music, you'd think I really like listening to upbeat, poppy, celebratory music. It's funny, not really. I can listen to some of that. Maybe 10 or 20% of the music that I listen to would be categorized as upbeat. But the music of my heart, the music that I love and have for decades is melancholy music, reflective music, pensive music, music that puts me in a frame of mind to, to think and to remember. And it puts me in a really thankful state of mind. And uh, I've always been hugely nostalgic. And um, yeah, I, I can just feel this. I feel this. And so I'm going to read this paragraph. It's too good. Many years, Moses and Aaron had stood side by side in their cares and labors. Together they had, and I love this, breasted unnumbered dangers. Great writing. Breasted unnumbered dangers. They had shared together the signal blessing of God. But the time was at hand when they must be separated lump in the throat, right? They moved on very slowly, not because they were old necessarily. Why? Because every moment in each other's society was precious, right? This leads me to believe that, that Aaron must have known on their way up the hill that he was going up the hill to die, right? So they're just taking their time and they're, they're, they're talking and they're reminiscing and they're just enjoying, as she says, one another's society. So beautiful. The ascent was steep and toilsome, and as they often paused to rest, they communed together of the past and the future. That's awesome. That is so beautiful. It just gets me in the feels, right? They didn't only talk about the past, talk about their childhood, talk about Egypt, talk about Midian. That's not all they talked about. They talked about the future. Well, how are they going to talk about the future? Think that through. If Moses has told Aaron that he's going to die on top of this mountain. Well, what future is there? Hallelujah. They believe and they understand there is a resurrection. There's a future, a grand, glorious future. They're not going to go into the lower P promised land. They're going to go into the capital P, capital L promised land. And so I just love this idea that it wasn't all morose and it wasn't all sad and it wasn't all depressing. No, they talked about the past, the trials, the difficulties, the good times, the laughter, the tears, and they talked about the future. Tell me that doesn't thrill your soul. Come on now. This is what we should be doing at funerals. This is what we should be doing in our churches. This is what we should be doing. We should not only be talking about the past, we should be talking about the future. Woo! I love this. Before them, as far as the eye could reach, was spread out the scene of their desert wanderings. They just look out and they just... They can see where they've come from. They can see Israel down. You know, for me, I spent a lot of time in the mountains. I mentioned that I've already written a song about the mountains, and someday I'll record it, and you'll get to hear it. Um, they, and they can, they can look to where they're going. You know, it, it's all so beautiful. Uh, before them, as they look out, as far as the eye could reach, was spread out the scene of their desert wanderings, and the plain below were encamped the vast host of Israel, for whom these chosen men had spent the best portion of their lives. Wow! For whose welfare they had felt so deep an interest and made so great sacrifices. Somewhere beyond the mountains of Edom, 
was the path leading to the promised land. Capital P, capital L. You see that? Note that. Promised land. This is a play here. Not just the promised land, the earthly promised land, but somewhere out there, beyond the mountains, beyond the horizon, is the promised land. Woo! I'm all in the fields here. That land whose blessing Moses and Aaron were not to enjoy. Their rebellious feelings found a place. No, no rebellious feelings found a place in their hearts. No expression of murmuring escaped their lips. Yet a solemn sadness rested upon their countenances as they remembered what had debarred them from the inheritance of their fathers. What a bittersweet experience that would have been. Bittersweet, so much nostalgia, so many memories. I mean, I go on a camping trip with friends and family for, you know, two or three weeks. We go backpacking for two or three weeks every year. And when you come to the end of the trip, you just, you're just thinking back over the trip and the streams that you fished in and the lakes that you swam in and the mountains that you climbed and the weather that you saw and, and the wildlife. And, and you just, and you remember, and you're just, you're just flush with thankfulness and with memories and nostalgia. Imagine what Moses and Aaron are feeling. They had 40 years of backpacking. I mean, a 40-year journey, yeah, just this chapter got me all, just got me all feeling good. Um, you can read the next section there. I mean, all of this is so good. You can just keep reading it. It's so beautiful. Um, jump over onto page 517. Paragraph begins with deep sorrow, page 426 of the original. With deep sorrow, Moses removed from Aaron the holy vestments and placed them upon Eliezer who thus became his successor by divine appointment. And uh, then she makes the point that this wasn't God's plan A. God's plan A was for both Moses and Aaron to go into the promised land, but their rebellion that we talked about yesterday, or rebellion is the wrong word, their, their transgression, their inattentiveness, rebellion is definitely the wrong word, their inattentiveness uh, did not allow them to go in. And so I can just imagine that was a moment of simultaneous pride and deep sadness. For Aaron to see his own high priestly vestments being taken off of him and placed on to Eliezer. I mean, that must have thrilled his soul. And at the same time, at the height of joy and happiness that only a parent can know when you see your children really coming into their own, maturing, growing, you know that that's really not the way it was supposed to be. Yes, this day would come someday, but you were supposed to go into the promised land. This ceremony of the transfer of the high priestly vestments wasn't supposed to take place here on Mount Hor. So there's this real high beauty and then this real sadness too. Whew. She has that great line there in that paragraph, a wrong act can never be undone. That's true. That's true. It can be forgiven, but not undone. Next page. 518, 427, I just wrote scene, which I often do, S-C-E-N-E, -E, right? This is such a great scene. The forms of Moses and Eliezer were at last discerned, slowly descending the mountainside, and the Israelites are looking up and saying, hey, wait a minute. Three went up, Moses and Aaron and Eliezer, and they look up and they see only Moses and Eliezer, and he's dressed in the high priestly vestments. Just sad and beautiful and wonderful and tragic, all rolled into one. The forms of Moses and Eliezer were at last discerned, slowly descending down the mountainside, but Aaron was not with them. Upon Eliezer were the sacerdotal garments, 
showing that he had succeeded his father in the sacred office. As the people with heavy hearts gathered about their leader, Moses told them, lump in the throat, that Aaron had died in his arms. Wow. His older brother dying in his arms. And, and Moses would have known at some level, of course, Aaron was always going to die, but he would have known at some level it was his own fault that it worked out this way, right? You rebels, must we fetch water from this rock? And he strikes the rock two times. He knows. And yet he knew he was forgiven. He knew that it was going to be okay, that it was all going to work out. But, but what a missed opportunity because a wrong act can't be undone. Aaron had died in his arms upon Mount Hor, and they buried him there. The congregation broke forth in mourning and lamentation, for they all loved Aaron. I didn't underline that. I should underline that. For they all loved Aaron. How beautiful. That's just how it should be. I mean, Aaron is the symbol of Jesus. He's the high priest. That's the way they should have felt about him, right? He was not as firm as he should have been in one of the sort of telltale characteristics that we see of Aaron's personality is that he was very often yielding. She actually makes that point back on page 516. She, she reminds us that he had a yielding personality, but still he was a lovable person, right? We, we would want those people that are in that high priestly office, that figure of Christ to be accessible, to be the kinds of people that could be loved, not stern, not exacting, not unkind, not unmerciful, good people, accessible people, approachable people, imperfect though they be. There's no question that when we read the Gospels, Jesus was available, he was approachable, he was accessible, he was lovable, and so was Aaron. The people loved Aaron. Though they had so often caused him sorrow, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days. Okay? Um, she then has this really great point here, and I, I've got to agree with this. She makes this point that, that a lot of modern-day funerals are kind of, they're kind of unfortunate, and actually, she says that God is not honored in the great display so often made over the dead, and the extravagant, extravagant expense incurred in returning their bodies to the dust. I got to agree on this big time. In fact, real talk now, real talk. Um, I would much prefer to just die quietly alone in the woods and nobody ever finds my body or knows where I'm buried. I don't need a memorial. This is me. I'm talking me now. I don't need a memorial. I don't need a funeral service. My boys know that I love them. My wife knows that I loved her. I don't need speeches and songs and programs and coffins. I don't need all that. I, and I don't, frankly, I don't want it. And I think a lot of people are like this. We've made death so unnatural and, and such a weird thing. Like, I know we have our ceremonies of grieving and of healing, and everybody grieves in, in different ways. I get that. But if we really do believe that God's got this and that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, death is an enemy, but the passing of someone who loved God and who was loved by their community and their family should just be a pause, not a stop. And I would want to die like this. I would just want to go to the top of a mountain and lay down. That's it. That's great. I don't need all of the pomp and circumstance. We're going to get 
We're going to get more of that than we will know what to do with when we go to the new heaven and the new earth and we're standing on the sea of glass and singing praises with the 24 elders and the, the, the four beasts that are seen there surrounding the throne of God and the angelic host, right? Thousand times, 1,000 times 1,000 and thousands of thousands or 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I mean, come on. I'll save my, my, my big celebration for that. So I actually agree with what she says here. Um, then I'm just going to briefly touch on this. They leave Mount Hor, they travel south, and they have this little defeat by this king, Arad, whoever that is. I'm not going to really spend any time on that. But then she says they start to like murmur, and this is hardly surprising. She says they actually return to their old habit of murmuring. Jump down to 519-528. Just a quick lesson on this paragraph begins as they continued their journey. Mm, about a third of the way down that paragraph, sentence begins, by continually dwelling on the dark side of their experiences, they separated themselves farther and farther from God. You need to underline that, and so do I. I already did. That, that, that is, there's so much to learn in that one sentence. Read it again. By continually dwelling upon the dark side of their experiences. Hey, look, do you have some dark chapters in your life? Yes, you do. Do I have some dark chapters in my life? Yes, I do. Have you failed? Yes, you have. Have you made mistakes? Yes, you have. Have you made a mess of it? Yes, you have. Have you hurt people? Yes, you have. Have you been hurt? Yes, you have. Yeah, yeah, we all have those storms. We all have that those dark periods. You might be in the midst of a dark period right now, right? That's not, that's not unique to you. I was actually having this conversation with my good friend Jennifer Schwerzer, who's been on the program a few days ago, and I was saying that I think we need to be careful that we don't pathologize the human experience. And, and I don't want to say that there are not medical conditions, mental instability and mental illnesses that do require treatment and therapy. Okay, I grant that. But, but everybody's afraid at some level, and everybody has anxiety at some level, and everybody's sad at some level, right? Like, we, we need to be careful that we don't pathologize and medicalize the human condition. Life is hard, man. There are dark chapters in our lives. And don't get me wrong, there are people that get so trapped in the cycle of darkness that they need an intervention, whether it's friends intervening, or they need an anointing, or they need therapy, or they need medicine. I get that. My, my mother uh, was diagnosed with what used to be called bipolar disorder and now, or manic depression, now bipolar disorder, when she was very young, like a teenager. I've grown up in a home where mental illness is a reality. It's just a part of the sort of atmosphere. I, I'm not suggesting in any way that mental illness is not a thing. What I am saying is, I do think we are in some danger of pathologizing and medicalizing just normal human experiences that are hard. Life is hard, man. People do have anxiety, and they do have insecurity, and they do have uncertainty, and they do have fear, and and they do have sadness and depression. That's just life. It's life. And again, I'm not talking about the people that get trapped in these vicious cycles and they need an intervention, medical or otherwise. But friends, that's part of the human experience. For all of us, we live in a broken world, right? If you read the epistles of Paul, you get the strong sense that Paul wrestled almost uninterruptedly continually throughout his ministry with a sense of, whether or not what he was doing was successful or working or just a giant waste of time. Welcome to humanity. 
Welcome to life, man. Life is tough, and yet we're faced with a choice. In addition to the dark chapters, there are things that we all have to be thankful for. There are joys, there are beauties, there are smells, there are tastes, there are experiences, there are friendships. There's so much good as well, and and so we have a choice to make, right? And and the choice is not to be a Pollyanna, not to be, you know, uh, an unaffected optimist, but it's just to be a Christian. And part of being a Christian is to know, hey, at the end of this, it's all going to work out. God's got this. God has got this. And I don't know what the this is in your life, but I know God's got it. I know God's got it. Because if God is willing in Christ to go to the cross and to hang there bruised and beaten and bloodied and battered, if those are the lengths to which God is willing to go to fix, to remedy the human condition, I don't know what your this is, but I know that God's got this. He's got it. And we then can make the conscious choice to dwell on either the things that bring us down or the things that lift us up. And to surround ourselves with people, either that bring us down or that lift us up. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't times for reflection and for sadness. Of course there are. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's different than dwelling, living in that dark, morose place and just spiraling into the pit of self-pity. And so read it again. By continually dwelling on the dark side of their experiences, they separated themselves farther and farther from God. And I'm sad to say I've met people like this. They just can't shake off the darkness, the sadness, the depression. And very often, not always, but very often, those people need some kind of an intervention, right? They need need God and, and therapy or something to snap them out of it. But I think for most of us, the vast majority of us, personally, and I don't want to upset anybody, I'm not into this normalization of the pathologizing and the medicalizing of the human experiences. Life is hard, and it's happy. It's beautiful, and it's a bummer, right? And it's both. And um, yeah, I just wanted to say that. She talks about the spirit of discontent. She says they were disposed. (laughs) Look at this, bottom of page 519. Just to have to quickly mention this. 428 of the original paragraph begins, as the Israelites indulged the spirit of discontent. Listen to this. They were disposed to find fault even with their blessings. Come on now. Guilty. Been there. Done that. Right? To find fault even with our blessings. You know you're in a bad place when God gives you a blessing and you're like, well, I thought it would be bigger. I thought it would be better. I thought it would be grander than this. Right? You kind of know you're in a bad place when even if you get that glimmer of a blessing, you still have the attitude of complaint. That's a litmus test, right? That's a litmus test. And again, we can all have those periods, you know, where you go into a period of a day, a week, even a month of real pensive reflection and, and maybe even some sadness and nostalgia. That's fine. When my, I had two friends, two very close friends that died in rapid succession, 53 years old and 46 years old, they died within a few months of each other. And that was a hard pill for me to swallow. That was, a, that was a hard one. I received a package. I received a package from Penny, my friend Martin, who passed away. Penny, his wife, sent me a package of, of all a lot of gear that I had purchased for Martin and that we had used together, and it was his fishing equipment. She sent me this large package. And um, when it came, 
I could not open it. I literally, I, I'd pick it up and I would just, I couldn't open it. I know that there was, I knew there was going to be so many tears and so many memories and I was not ready for Martin to die. He was 46, way too young to be dying. And that package sat in my office unopened for almost a year. Just sat there. It was a big package. I couldn't open it. So we need to have those periods where we go in and reflect and we hurt. And yeah, yeah. But a good litmus test for whether or not that's just an episode in your life or that's the sort of tenor of your life is when God sends his blessings, are you tempted even to find fault there? Whew. Okay, so then I'm just going to close on this. Uh, this is one of the great stories in the Old Testament, and it's, of course, the story that's uh, right at the center of Jesus' uh, encounter in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. As the, Son of Man was uh, as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, John chapter 3. And, and there's so much going on here, but I will just say a couple things about this. Um, she makes the point that they were always under God's protection, right? They were always being protected, but they, they had so lost sight of the blessings that God had given them, the privileged position that they occupied, that they didn't realize that they, they were in a dangerous, precarious situation. I mean, in the wilderness, there's, there's stuff in the wilderness. There's weather in the wilderness, and there's animals in the wilderness, and there's sickness in the wilderness, and there are these fiery serpents in the wilderness. And when they started to murmur and complain and say, oh, you know, God's not really looking out for us, and it's all coming apart, God withdrew. He withdrew his protective hand, and when he withdrew his protective hand, by the way, I have a sermon I preach on this. Um, it's an older sermon, probably six years old or maybe seven years old, but it's it's a part of the Ablazing Grace series. So if you want to go on the Kingscliff YouTube channel, you can go back, and I think it's titled In the Wilderness Part One, and I actually talk about this story. And I get into sort of the details of the Numbers chapter 21 story of the serpents coming out. And so if you have an interest in that, go check it out. Kingscliff YouTube channel, Ablazing Grace series. And I think it's number 29 in the series. 29 or 39, I think it's 29. Anyway, here's one of the interesting things. These serpents that come out, we don't know for sure, but they're almost certainly this kind of smallish viper that, that is found, you know, all in and around the Middle East and as far away as Morocco and even over toward um, India. And it's a, it's a viper, a poisonous viper called a saw-scaled viper. And it's from the genus Echis. And what's interesting about these little vipers is, um, like a lot of vipers, they're slow moving. They tend to be fat. And they, they just kind of sit and they camouflage and they wait for something to, to come by. And um, these, these vipers, these saw-scaled vipers, just when they're agitated, a little bit like a rattlesnake. In the United States, we have this snake called a, a rattlesnake and it has a little rattle on the end of the tail. And when they're agitated and about ready to strike or they feel threatened, they'll coil up and then they'll 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 vibrate that little rattle. I've I've seen this. In fact, I almost got bit by a rattlesnake one time when I was rock climbing. But what these saw-scaled vipers do is actually kind of similar. It's very interesting. What they do is they they lay in such a way that they're 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 called saw scaled. Their their scales actually rub against one another and they vibrate their bodies. And check this out. 
When they vibrate their bodies, it makes a sound like the crackling of a fire. True story. You can look it up. They, 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 they make this little crackling sound, and it sounds like there's a fire, you know, that crackling sound. And this is why there's good reason to believe that these are the fiery serpents that are spoken of here. Fiery serpents. Also, their bite causes significant inflammation. It does, it can cause death. It can lead to death. It doesn't result in immediate death. It's normally a death that takes a day or two, right, for the inflammation to sort of take over, and then you die this slow, painful death, which would be really consistent with the story here, because as the people were dying, and then Moses erects the brazen serpent, there was still time for the people who had been bitten and who were succumbing to the inflammation and the sickness to look. Right, I just spent, as you know, many of you, seven years in Australia, and six of the 10 deadliest snakes in the world live in Australia. And in Australia, they have the, uh, a snake called the Inland Taipan, and it is the most poisonous snake in the world in terms of the, 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 the poisonous nature of the venom. It's actually quite a retiring snake, and they tend to you know, not be interested in people, so they're not, they don't kill a lot of people, but if you get bit by one, um, some people call it the two-step snake. So you get bit, you take a step, you take another step, and then you die, right? You don't, there's no time. You have just enough time to say, Lord, save me, I perish. And then you perish. But these fiery serpents, these very likely saw-scaled vipers were not like that. You get bit and you die later that day or the next day or the day after that as the inflammation takes over, depending on fitness. And these people would have been very fit right? Spending that much time in the wilderness, eating the food that they're eating. They're not obese. These are fit people. And so they were living, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours. And this was enough time for them to cry out to Moses, Moses to cry out to God. And then for this serpent on the pole, this brazen serpent to be erected and for them to look and live. And, uh, there, there's a lot going on here. And, you know, many of you know this story, so I'm just going to say a few words about it. Um, one of my favorite things about the last like four pages here is just how steeped it is, how saturated it is in this righteousness by faith, the merits of Christ language. Now I'm just going to read a few of my favorites here. They could not save themselves. God alone was able to heal them. They knew that there was no virtue in the serpent itself, the metal serpent, but it was a symbol of Christ and the necessity of faith in his merits was thus presented to their minds. Man, she loves the word merits in these, in these last like three pages. The Lord would now teach that their sacrifices in themselves had no more power or virtue than the serpent of brass, but they were like that to lead their minds to Christ, the great sin offering. She says on the next page here, page 523, 432 of the original paragraph begins, Nothing but the righteousness of Christ can entitle us to one of the blessings of the covenants of grace. Write it down. Write it down. Mark it. Underline it. Nothing but the righteousness of Christ can entitle us to one of the blessings of the covenant of grace. Second to the last sentence in that same paragraph. We must not think that our own merits will save us. Christ is our only hope of salvation. Jumping down to the bottom of that page. Um, while we realize our helpless condition without Christ, we are not to yield to discouragement. That's what we were talking about earlier. Yes, life is hard, and yes, there are periods of, of depression and darkness and difficulty, but we are not to yield our minds 
to discouragement. We are to rely upon the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Look and live. And then she goes on to say, Jesus has pledged his word. He will save all who come to him. Circle that. All who come to him, though millions who need to be healed will reject his offered mercy. Not one. Underline it. Circle it. Not one who trusts in his merits will be left to perish. And then on the, in the last paragraph on the last page, she talks about how God has given sufficient evidence for people to look. Not exhaustive evidence, but sufficient evidence. And this was one of the things I really liked about the conversation that I had with John. We talked quite a little bit about the limits of human knowledge and about the considerable ignorance that we, that, that, that we have. Right? We, we are, John tells the story about this pie chart, and he, he uses this pie chart in his um, classes, and he has a thin little line in the, pine in the pie chart, and it says, things we know. And then there's a quite a large section that says, things we don't know. And then the majority of the pie chart is things that we don't even know that we don't know. Right? So, so people that are waiting around say, well, I have more questions. They want every single objection answered. She actually says this, very last paragraph. Many are unwilling to accept of Christ until the whole mystery of the plan of salvation shall be made plain to them. Well, I got news for you. Since this is a mystery that we will be studying throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, there is no sense in which any person will have this exhaustively understood and comprehended. No, it's a mystery. But insofar as we can comprehend it, we are able to, and God has given us sufficient evidence upon which to look and live, because she says that some said, now there can't be any value in a brazen servant. How's that going to fix me? How's that going to heal me? It's irrational. It's nonsensical, right? The people today would say it's non-scientific. It's not sufficiently modern. How could a crucified Jew, a would-be Messiah, on a Roman instrument of torture, how could that be the Savior? And we say, well, read the Bible, read the text. They say, no, I'm not interested. It's there. It's available to them. They could be healed. They could be saved. Not one, not one, not one need perish. Not one need be lost. But if you won't look and live, then you will be blinded and you will perish. So look and live, look and live. And, and this is a great section, but I loved, loved, loved. I mean, you, you could say many things about Ellen White. One thing you could not say about Ellen White is that she did not understand righteousness by faith and the merits of Jesus. I'll read it again quickly. Nothing but the righteousness of Christ can entitle us to one of the blessings of the covenant of grace. We must not think that our own merits will save us. Christ is our only hope of salvation. While we realize our helpless condition without Christ, we are not to yield to discouragement, but rely upon the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Look and live. Though millions who need to be healed will reject his offered mercy, not one who trusts in his merits will be left to perish. Say it with me. Not one. Not one. And that's our chapter today. I loved it. I absolutely, there's so many great little gems in this chapter. And I, oh, by the way, I uh, probably, oh, I don't know, two months ago, I watched this very interesting interview with uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson who wrote uh, 12 Rules for Life and Beyond Order, really fascinating guy. Probably, 
I would say maybe the world's foremost public intellectual right now, really fascinating person. And uh, I've sort of followed him um, and kept up with him over the last three to four years. Fascinating person. Anyway, I, he was recently on the Joe Rogan um, podcast and somebody sent me a clip, a good friend of mine, Greg, sent me a clip, like a, like a 10 minute clip or a seven minute clip. And this, I don't know if you've seen this clip or not, but if you have it, it's worth seeing. Jordan Peterson explaining the cross and the serpent on the pole to Joe Rogan. Have you seen this clip? I mean, it's just incredible, right? Like Joe Rogan's coming at it from an academic perspective, from a psychological perspective, from a, you know, he's a clinical psychologist. But, and Joe Rogan, I don't think says a single thing in the whole clip. He just sits there, right? Joe Rogan, the number one podcaster in the world today, largest platform, really, of, of any public personality. And Jordan Peterson explains to him in like seven minutes the cross and the serpent on the pole. And one of the points that Peterson makes, smart, very good insight. He says, look, these, these serpents come out into the camp. They were there all along and it was God's restraining, right? God's removal of his restraining power that caused the serpents to come in. And they cry out to, to God and say, take the serpents away, heal us or whatever. And he makes this fascinating point. From a clinical psychological perspective, he says this. He says, what God did not do was take the serpents away, right? The serpents didn't just magically disappear. They were still there. They were still in the wilderness. But what he did was he had Moses make a metal serpent, put it on a pole, and they were to look to it. Now, the theological explanation here is, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is what Ellen White unpacks. But Peterson makes this fascinating point. He says that God required them to face their fears before they could be healed. And I've never had that thought in my whole life. Fascinating. The serpent was the thing they were afraid of. You know, you're looking under every blanket. You know, they've come in, you have friends that have been bitten, and, and you know they're in the camp, and they're everywhere. And as somebody who lived in Australia... You know, when you think there's a snake around or you're in an area where there can be a snake, you are on high alert. You can feel the hair stand up on the back of your necks. So they're afraid. They're in terror, afraid that they're going to be bitten and they're going to die this slow, painful, you know, inflammational death. And so everything, you know, every shadow, it looks like there could be a serpent in the shadow. There could be a stick. They're afraid. And what God says is you have to face your fear. You have to look. You have to Face your fear. God doesn't remove the difficulty. He says, face your fear. And in facing your fear, we find meaning, we find freedom, and we overcome our fears. Now, that's obviously a sort of secondary application here, and it's a psychological application, but I think it's a good one. I think it's a good point that, that God's not going to just make life easy for us because we're followers of Jesus. Man, there's fiery serpents. There's fiery trials. There's difficulties in the world. And we can either live in fear or we can face our fears with God. And when we face our fears, they cease to have power over us. They cease to have control over us. And the number one way to face your fear is to put your faith in God. Put your faith in God. And anyway, I thought that was a great point. If you haven't seen that clip, go find it on YouTube. You could probably just type in Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, serpent, pole, or, or cross or something. You'll be able to find it. Okay, let's do the uh, rubric very quickly here. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. What was the point of this chapter? 
Here's what I wrote. We are doomed without God's watch care over us and his merciful provisions and protections, the majority of which we are entirely unaware. Right? Right? Like, we need to be mindful that we only know the things that we're protected from when we are made aware of them. What about all the things, the hundreds and thousands of things, whether it's a disease or a car accident or uh, a malfunctioning uh, uh, part in a plane? We don't know. We have no idea how often we owe our lives to God's providence, God's intervention, and angels. Guardian, we don't know. So we just need to remind ourselves again and again that life is a gift, life is a blessing. Yes, it's hard and it can be dark, but there's a lot to be thankful for. And we shouldn't allow our minds to dwell in the depths of discouragement. And if you find that that is where you're at, then I'm encouraging you to get help, right? Find some professional help or a group of friends that can conduct an intervention and get you out of that dark place because you can have seasons of sadness and reflection, and depression, but you should not be stuck there. Not when Jesus is alive, not when Jesus is on the throne. Come on now. So that's number one, the point. Number two, the person. Here's what I wrote. God makes salvation and healing as easy and accessible as possible without removing the necessity of faith. Right, right? Like, like look at the serpent. How easy could that be? I mean, clearly God is communicating here it's not rocket science. It's not difficult. It's not impossible. It's, it's not climb, you know, Mount Everest. It's not swim the English Channel. It's look and live. Look and live. I mean, if the thief on the cross can turn to Jesus in those last frightful moments of his life and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus can say to that guy, Verily I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, you're going to be okay. You are going to be okay because God is making salvation and healing as easy and as accessible as possible to us, but without removing the necessity of faith because that would be coercive. We have to participate, but our participation is like the, the least possible effort, the lowest possible threshold. Believe. Look live. You can do that. You can do that. And so can I. Okay, uh, the prayer. Here it is. Simple, short, sweet. God, teach me to look and live. Teach me to look and live. Amen. To look every day. Not even just every day. To look as, as often as I remember, many times a day, to look to Jesus, to remember Jesus, to lean into Jesus, to look and live. How do we practice this chapter? Well, here's what I wrote. Complaining improves nothing, so don't do it. Murmuring's not going to fix anything. Complaining's not going to fix anything, so don't do it. My own expressions of unbelief and doubt and frustration can actually be prophetic and create the very reality or outcome that I dread. It's not only God's words that are creative, let there be light. Our own words are creative. And when we speak unbelief, when we speak doubt, when we speak darkness, when we complain, we actually create often the very circumstance that we're afraid of. And that's what happened here, both with the refusal to enter the Canaan land and thus the 
the inability to, to travel through Edom. So that was their own fault. And then here with the serpents, they thought it, they dreaded it, they created it. And then finally, what is the promise here? The promise is look and live. That's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise of the Old Testament. It's the promise of Numbers 21. It's the promise of the New Testament. What does the Old Testament say? Isaiah, look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Okay, I want to know what your word was. I want to know what your word was. Oh, I like what you say there, Megan. Prayer instead of pining. Very good. All right, what was your word? Lisa5037 Taylor, that's my word as well. Naomi Hanbury, Australia, that's my word. Everybody's got the same word. Well, not everybody, a lot of people. Jen, same word. Allison, same word. That word is look. Look. Here's some other words. Faith. Amen. Sylvia says Deuteronomy. Choose life. Marco says look. Hannah says look. And and or unmurmur. Oh, that's cute. I like that. Look. 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 Cassandra says faith. Christina says look. Dino says look. Debbie says look. Raindrop 777 says look. Savant Pava says look. Ooh. I agree. Nay makes 21 says, I love this book. You and I both. Uh, Jim says, look. Amaro says, look. Face is another word. Look, look. Oh, this is probably the, the greatest consensus that we've had. It's not totally unanimous, but it's pretty close. It's looking to me like about 75% or more of people are saying, look, behold. That's good. That's very similar. Okay, some other words coming through here. Delay. Hannah says that look was the low-hanging fruit. That's true. Yeah, look. And by the way, I don't know if you saw this or not. Um, one of the other things that I really liked was that, that Moses and Aaron and Eliezer were at the top of Mount Hor, and they looked, right? They looked out, and they could literally see the geography of the past, and they could see where Israel presently was, and then they could see the geography of the future. They could see the path through the mountains into the promised land. So you get, it kind of brings the two chapters together that God invites us to not only look to the past and to reflect, but to look to the future like Moses and Aaron did, right? To look to the past and to, to be thankful for the present, but to look to the future. And then the chapter closes with look and live, look and live. So for me, look was the word. God bless you all. Love you so much. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. I can't believe I'm saying this. Day 40, Chapter 39 of OT with DA, and it looks like maybe, just maybe, I'm going to have a special, unexpected, unannounced guest, actually two of them, this weekend. Maybe. We're going to see if we can pull it off. Um, so stay tuned. All right, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you. We praise you. We look to you. We lean into you. We believe in you. We receive you. We receive the merits of Christ. Father, not one need be lost. Not one need perish. Father, that's us. We don't want to be on the outside looking in. We want to be on the inside looking up, looking to Jesus, the one who became sin for us, 
What a strange symbol for Jesus, a serpent on a pole. The serpent is the symbol of Satan. How can that be a, a symbol of Jesus? But he took the weight of the sin of the world, the darkness, the rebellion, the oppression, the injustice, the hurt, the pain, onto himself. Father, what a fitting and beautiful symbol of Jesus, dark and sad and yet liberating and amazing. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he would look like anything but a Savior. He would be easy to despise, easy to disbelieve, to say, what, this, this is a Messiah? This is a Savior? This? And yet, that which appears at first to be ugly and grotesque, the thing that we would want to even look away from in disgust and horror, is none other than the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer. Father, we love you, but we know that is not the big story. The big story is your love for us, not our love for you. And I want to pray a special prayer for all of those that we talked about that are in that darkness, in that depression, in that cycle that they just can't break out of. Father, I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying for a breakthrough. I'm praying for an anointing of your spirit. Father, if there are people that need to hear that message, pull them out by your grace. And Father, if they need an intervention of, of some more professional kind, Father, use that. Use whatever. And Father, pull them out and help them to look, to look forward, to believe, to hope, to look and live. Father, we love you and thank you. In the powerful, saving name of Jesus Christ, to whom we look. Amen.